we wouldn't, we wouldn't want things to get too serious. We've got to keep it a little light, right? And see, this is what family does. Family cleans up one another's messes, right? Great moment to mute your phone, silence your phone if you haven't already. All right, thank you, brothers. Well, last week we began a new series on identity. We talked about the fact that most people, including many Christians, find their identities in things that will eventually change or end. So people find their identity in being a great husband or a great wife or a faithful husband or a faithful wife, but someday they may very well lose their spouse and be a widow or a widower, and that identity is has taken from them. They may find their identity in their family. We're, we're, uh, we're a great family. We have a really wholesome family. I'm a great dad. I'm a great mom. I'm a committed dad. I'm a committed mom. But what happens if your children die or just grow up and they have their own lives and they move away and they are not as dependent or needy uh, upon you as they once were and that identity is greatly diminished or maybe you find it in a job but what happens if you lose that job or you you eventually retire or you find it in a hobby but what if you lose that ability to do that hobby people including many Christians find their identities in these things and they're all subject to change I remember an elderly man that I knew uh, who had been very, very active in life. He had been a very hard worker, and uh, he also uh, had hobbies, things that he liked to work on with his hands. And, and there, at the very uh, tail end of his life, he could barely see, and he could barely hear, and so he was neither able to work nor was he able to tinker. And I remember vividly, almost every time I would talk with him, he would say, why am I still alive? Why am I still alive? Because he could no longer do the things that he had busied himself with most of his life. Now, whether or not this man was having a crisis of identity, this much is true. When people lose the things that give them a sense of identity, they often flirt with the idea of ending it all or they just simply lose drive and motivation to continue going about their everyday lives and deep depression will often set in. The loss of one of what we see as a foundational or primary identity can seem like the loss of reason to live. So rather than finding our identity in things that we can't control and that are subject to change and guaranteed to end, we should base our identities on who God is and what he's done and who we are in relation to him. And we refer to these things as gospel identities. So because there's one true God and he's our creator and because uh, we are separated from him on account of our sin, which we've inherited and which we have chosen, so we're sinners, this, this God has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself through Christ 
who lived the life that we should live, who died the death that we deserve to die, and who rose from the dead. And because we can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, so we are justified, we are made right with God, we ask the question, who am I? In light of who he is and what he's done, who am I? So last Sunday, we started looking at these these primary identities, and, and we started with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, which tells us that by the Spirit, through Christ, we have access to the Father, and we are members of the same household, which is another way of saying we are family. In Christ, we are children of a Father who is God, and we are also joined by the Spirit to innumerable brothers and sisters, both in heaven and the world over. This is one of our primary identities through the gospel, in light of the gospel, we are family. Today we're going to look at another one of these identities, who we are in light of the gospel, and it is we are students. We are students. And there, there are a couple reasons why we may bristle at the use of this particular word, why we may resist identifying as students. And, and the first of those is that maybe we weren't, we weren't school material. We didn't, we didn't really like school. We didn't flourish in a classroom setting. That just wasn't, that just wasn't our bag. And so we hear students and we think school and we're like, I was a fish out of water at school and, and I don't really, I don't really like thinking of myself as a student. Or, or maybe we don't, we don't like reading. I'm not a reader. I didn't, I didn't like to read when I had to read. I don't have to read now. My work doesn't require me to have to read. I, I'm just, I just um, books bore me. My mind's all over the place, and I just, I'm not a reader, so student, uh, I think reading, and I'm, I'm not about that. Or perhaps it is because of this anti-intellectualism. This spirit of anti-intellectualism that has crept into the church where things like theology and doctrine, they seem very stale and dry and lifeless. This anti-intellectualism which devalues critical thinking about major truths. This, this anti-intellectualism which is very uh, reticent about tradition and planning and order and instead favors um, feeling and spontaneity and expressiveness instead of those things. Or it, it could just simply be that it sounds patronizing. When I hear student, I think kid or maybe teenager, and it just, it, it sounds belittling. It, it feels below me. And, and to be fair, there are other words that we could have we could have chosen that carry this same idea. Words like disciple. The problem with the word disciple is that we don't commonly use it in our regular vocabulary. Outside of religious settings, we don't really talk about people being disciples very often. And so for our purposes, we're going to use a word that we're familiar with in life at large, and that is student. One of our primary gospel identities is that we are students. And we can't embrace Jesus and be Christians unless we become his students. And we will likely advance very little in the faith 
unless we embrace this identity. So I invite you today to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, as we see this idea more clearly articulated in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And it reads, <clears throat> Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. So in these three verses, we see Jesus' invitation and Jesus' alternative. Jesus' invitation is for everyone who is weary and weighed down with burdens to come and find rest. And this is a general invitation. There is no fine print. There are no additional qualifications. We can take this at face value. Everyone is invited to come to Jesus. But it's important for us to clarify what Jesus' invitation is. Jesus is not inviting people who've had a really busy month to come to him for a spa day. Jesus is not inviting overworked people whose lives are overscheduled, whose calendars are cluttered, to pray to him that they might be re-energized and recharged to continue living the same kind of life at the same pace. Looking at the context of Matthew 11, specifically Jesus is inviting everyone who is weary and heavy laden with sin and guilt, along with the pressure of trying to check all the boxes, of trying to balance the scale to do more good than bad and trying to earn God's forgiveness or acceptance or approval, he's inviting all of those people to come to him and find rest. He's saying, put all of your guilt and shame that you're carrying, put all of your sin that you've been mired in, Put all of your struggles to obey the law and to measure up. Put it all down and leave it all behind. For anyone who's tired of their life of sin, for everyone who is tired of trying to be good enough for God, for everyone who feels overwhelmed by their guilt and overwhelmed by all the rules they're trying to follow, Jesus said, you can be done with it. I've got you covered. That's Jesus's invitation. And it is an invitation for all of us and for everyone. But Jesus also gives an alternative, a different yoke, a different burden. You see, at the outset, it may have appeared that Jesus was doing away with all yokes and with all burdens. But instead, he's providing an alternative, an exchange of our old yoke for his new yoke and our old burden for his new burden. And once again, it's necessary to clarify what Jesus means here by yoke and burden. A yoke is a wooden beam 
that would harness two work animals together, two mules or two oxen, that would harness them together for the purpose of pulling, for the purpose of being connected to a weight that they would pull together. And in the Old Testament usage of that word, we often find that it's referring to that pair of animals. A yoke could be that pair that's connected and pulling weight, or it could be the actual instrument, the wooden beam itself, or it's also used to refer to both rule and subjugation. So an example of the latter use, we're told that King David had a great son named Solomon, and Solomon was a very great king. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And the people came to Rehoboam, and they said, Would you take it easy on us? For your dad, your father, put a heavy yoke on us. And Rehoboam foolishly said that you thought my father's was heavy, mine will be heavier still. And the people rebelled against him, and the kingdom was split. The kingdom was divided because of his foolishness. But they were saying, your father's rule over us was like a yoke on animals, and we were pulling your father's kingdom. The people were the strength of his kingdom, and his yoke on us was heavy. Or after the people continued, the people of Israel continued in disobedience to God, foreign nations came in and they conquered them and they subjected them to harsh rule and the prophets of old prophesied that there would be a coming age when the Lord would break the yoke of all of their oppressors. He would break this heavy, harsh rule and subjugation from off of them. But there's another way that this word yoke and burden are also used. In rabbinical literature or the, the, teach, the writings of the rabbis, the writings of the Jewish teachers, yoke is also used to refer to the yoke of the kingdom or the yoke of the law. So all of the commandments of the Old Testament, all of the teaching of the Old Covenant was a yoke on the people. They were under the rule of the law, and they were to pull the weight of the law, obeying all the commandments, following all the traditions. The problem is that's not really what the law was intended for. The law was never intended to make anyone righteous. It was never set on the shoulders of people that by pulling it, that they could move the weight, they could move the weight of their sin from a negative position to God, with God to a positive position with God. Instead of making them righteous or right with God, the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. Like a mirror reveals a face, the law reveals our sin, and it points us to Christ, the only one who can take away our sins and make us right with God. So Romans chapter 10 says that the people being ignorant of God's righteousness, his, his gift of right standing, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They sought to establish their own record of right standing with God, and they did not submit to God's righteous standard. And Jesus talks about this 
He gives us a real-time picture of it in his day. In Matthew 23, if we fast forward through the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking to the scribes. These are the people who are the copyists. They are the experts of the law. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. These are teachers of the law. And he says to them, you tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and you lay them on people's shoulders like a yoke. And yet you are not willing to move them with a finger. You're good at telling the people what they have to do to be good enough and that they're not good enough and that they need to do better and try harder, but you don't do anything to help them. In the same discourse Jesus says about these teachers and experts, he says, you travel land and sea. You travel far away to make a single convert, a single follower, a single student of, of your ways. And when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And so Jesus's alternative to bearing or submitting to this yoke is his yoke. His alternative to this burden is his burden. In Acts 15, Peter says, that neither the apostles nor their fathers were able to bear this old yoke and this old burden. And so that's why they shouldn't put that, that yoke on the Gentiles or the non-Jews. And Jesus never had that in mind because Jesus says, come and learn from me. I'm not like them. I'm not like others. I'm not harsh. I'm gentle and lowly. And my burden is not burdensome. My yoke fits well. It's not super heavy. And the reason for that is the superiority of it. Jesus' yoke, Jesus' ways, commands, teaching is better than their understanding of the law and better than the law. And the other reason is because of grace. Because Jesus does all the heavy Lifting, it's not ultimately dependent upon us. It's dependent upon the one who saves us and qualifies us. That means, then, that the person who responds to Jesus' invitation to find rest, we all like that part, right? Come to me. The person who responds to Jesus' invitation to find rest is also accepting his call to be one of his students, to take on his yoke and to learn from him. You see, Jesus does not give rest to those who have no interest in taking on his yoke and learning from him. His invitation is coupled with his alternative. So if we are Christians, then one of our identities is that we are students of Jesus. So what are the implications of having the identity, the gospel identity of being a student. First of all, the first implication is that we are always learning. Should be there on the screen. There we go. We are always learning. A student learns. It's what they do. And because Jesus has called us to learn from him, we should expect our lives to be a lifelong journey of learning from Jesus. 
and as important as doctrine and theology are. And hear me, they are important. They are not non-essential. But as important as they are, we who are Christians can busy ourselves for the rest of our lives, not just with doctrine and theology, but rather with learning what God's like that we might be like him, learning Christ's ways that we might walk in them, and learning what Christ's commands are that we might obey them. That, that is content that we can busy ourselves with for the rest of our lives, which actually fits under doctrine and theology, but we don't often think about doctrine and theology as being that simple. What, what, God's, what God is like that we might be like him, what Christ's ways are that we might walk in them, what Christ's commands are that we might obey them. And we're not just learning information. We're learning application. We're not just acquiring knowledge, but we're learning practices. So we practice the presence of God, and we practice trusting in him, and we practice resisting sin and evil, and we practice loving and serving others, and we practice forgiving and we practice showing mercy. And until we have mastered Christ's ways and Christ's commands and Christ's character, we will continue to grow and to learn and to change. So everyone who is a Christian is a student, and everyone who is a student will always be learning. That's the first implication. The second implication is that we need to recognize our classroom because we hear student and we probably think classroom but when Jesus called his disciples to come and be his students he called them to follow him and so for three years they ate where Jesus ate and they slept where Jesus slept and they traveled where Jesus traveled and they ministered with Jesus and observed Jesus minister in all the places where Jesus ministered. Now, Jesus did go to the synagogue, and Jesus did go to the temple, and they joined Jesus in the synagogue, and they joined Jesus in the temple, and so there were more formal or institutional settings where they learned from Jesus, but they also joined Jesus in the open air, in the fields, in the boat, at weddings, along the road, and around many a table. And while it's vitally important for us to learn the words of Jesus, the word of God, when we gather as a church on Sundays, or when we gather in Sunday school, or when we gather in small groups, there are also other opportunities for us to be students of Jesus. And so we shouldn't compartmentalize our lives and think that we are learners for an hour on a Sunday morning, or we are learners in a small group, or we are learners when we're at the church building, that we are learners in institutional settings only. But rather, we should see that we are students and that God is teaching us in the learning lab of marriage how to be a follower of Jesus. And when we're with our children, he is teaching us how to be a follower of Jesus. And when we're around the dinner table or at work 
or with our neighbors. In all of our ordinary lives, there are learning environments, there are classroom settings where we are learning how to walk in the ways of Jesus and obey his commands and become more like him and recall his words to mind that we might put them into practice in our lives. A third implication of being students and this being a primary identity because of the gospel is that we need to be teachable. If we're students of Jesus who are called to lifelong learning in many different settings, we need to consider if we're teachable and whether or not we're receptive of what others have to say. The Apostle Paul had an assistant named Timothy who he left in Ephesus to straighten out the church there through teaching. And in his second letter to Timothy, he says, what you have heard from me teaching Entrust to faithful men, teach, who are able to teach others. Now, who were these men, faithful men? Well, they were pastors and elders, right? Or evangelists and other teachers, sure. But then in Colossians, this same apostle writes to the whole church there, and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts toward God. The whole church is involved. So who are we receiving instruction in Christ's word and ways from? Our leaders and teachers? Hopefully. We should be. But also every brother and sister in whom the Spirit of God lives and in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. So that means any time that we're around other Christians, there is an opportunity for us with one of our primary gospel identities as students to be learning how to grow in obedience to the words and ways of Jesus. The question for us then is, are we receiving it? Are we open to it? Any time that I'm with another believer, am I open to growing in Christ through the word of God that's dwelling richly in them? Are we open to allowing others to speak into our lives, to speak into our marriages, to speak into our parenting, to speak into our jobs, to speak into our pastimes. Not their opinions. Not their opinions. Oh, I really think you should send your kids to a private school. Or I really think you should homeschool. Or I really think you should send your kids to a public school. But I really think you should be discipling your children because God's word says, fathers, discipline your children and bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And oh, by the way, Moms are involved in that too. And so tell me about your spiritual influence in the life of your children. How's that going? Are we open to those conversations with other Christians? Are we open to receiving biblical wisdom? Not opinions, but wisdom that's rooted in scripture. I mean, think about this for just one second. 
In Acts 18, the Bible tells us about a man named Apollos. And Apollos was a very gifted preacher. And the Bible tells us that Apollos goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach God's word and point people to Jesus. And then we're told that a couple, not, not the leader of the synagogue, not an elder in the synagogue, not even an elder of the local church, we're told that a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, they took Apollos aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Hey, Apollos, we heard you preaching from the scriptures in the synagogue today. You did such a wonderful job pointing people to Jesus. Brother Apollos, we just want to tell you a little bit that you haven't got quite together. Would we receive that? I mean, this man is a contemporary of the apostles and a man and a woman in the church who loved Jesus and served the church took him aside and explained to him, a very gifted preacher, the way of God more accurately. Are we above that? Are we teachable? We're students. Are we teachable? A fourth implication. We need to be teaching others. One of the last commandments that Jesus gave his students is known as the Great Commission. And it's on this note that he's sending us out. And I loved the emphasis in that new song that we sang today, that we are sent, that we, this is the church that he is sending, that we're not just the church who's punching our time clock for one hour on Sunday morning. We're the church that's being sent out into the world. But it's on this note that Jesus is sending his church out right before he ascends. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commands his students to teach others to observe or obey everything he commanded. And do you realize what one of those commands is? It's to make disciples or followers or students of Jesus by teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. So one of the commands is to go and to teach others. Do you know what we call that? We call that student teaching, right? Jesus is the teacher, and he tells his students to teach other students as part of their learning. We often think that we have to reach a certain level of point of, or point of maturity before we can teach others. But as I mentioned from Colossians chapter 3, we're commanded to store up God's word in us so that we might teach it to one another. That means all of us should be teaching, not necessarily in classrooms or behind pulpits, not necessarily using lesson plans, but we should all be teaching the commands, the ways, the words of Jesus by our obedient example and by 
words of encouragement, words of reproof and correction, words of advice or instruction toward others who profess to be Christians as well as those who don't. That's how they become students of Jesus as well. So we should teach our spouse if we're married while at the same time being teachable to learn from them. We should teach our children if we're parents and especially if they're believers, remain teachable in those moments as well. And we should teach our brothers and sisters in Christ again as we remain teachable ourselves. And we should also teach those who do not know Christ as their master and Lord and teacher that they might know him too. So a fourth implication of being students is that we need to be teaching others. Now perhaps, perhaps you've never thought of yourself as a student before. As a Christian, you've never coupled that identity, I am a Christian, with saying I am a student. You've been growing and you've been learning, but this, this is a new perspective for you. Thinking of yourself as a student is a new perspective. And I, and I hope today that that gives you intentionality. Oh, wow, I am a student. I, learning is definitely on my radar. I hope it gives you intentionality and fresh grace to grow in the ways of Jesus, even as you're trusting him as your Lord and Savior, as your righteousness, even as you are coming to him for rest to find salvation in him alone through faith, I hope you're also seeing yourself as a student who is taking his teaching on and who is learning from him. But maybe you're a Christian who frankly has been skipping school. You've been skipping class. You're not learning. You're not growing. Outside of, outside of Sundays, outside of more institutional settings, you're just busy. You have little devotion to spiritual disciplines. You have, you have very few spiritual conversations through your week. There's very little teachableness on your radar. And I hope, if that's you, that understanding today that the same Jesus who invites you to rest also calls you to take his yoke and to learn from him and that you find a new sense of direction and a new sense of commitment in response to the grace of the Savior. But perhaps, perhaps there's someone here today and you, you are bearing other yokes. You're influenced by many other teachers and many other things, but not by Jesus. And you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never come to him for rest in your soul. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus for forgiveness. You've never laid it all on the line and say, I give it all up. Jesus, I throw all this off, this yoke, this burden. I come to you. I take your life for my life, your death for my death, your righteousness for my sinfulness. Lord, put your yoke on me. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ and become one of his students, as demonstrated through baptism, then today we invite you to call on the Lord and to enter into a relationship with him and to assume a new identity as the family of God and as a student of Christ based upon who God is and what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ.
And today, where you're at, you can call on God and do that. And, and then we invite you to come and talk to myself or Pastor Greg, Pastor Andrew, someone who is on the platform today and say, hey, I, I want to begin this, this life of knowing and following Jesus. We'd love to talk with you more about that. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand with me this morning as we pray before we take the Lord's Supper. And as you're standing and as our musicians come forward and as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today, I just remind you what the Lord's Supper is. It is a visual demonstration. It is a, an illustration, a picture of the gospel that Jesus died, that he was crucified, and that we are accepted by God simply by receiving what he has done. As we eat and drink, we're saying, my trust is in Jesus. I receive God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus. This is for Christians. It's not for super Christians. Because if you're only taking the Lord's Supper when you've been a super Christian, then you're not just receiving Jesus. You're actually bringing something to God and saying, I've been pretty good, right? That makes me worthy to receive. That's not Christianity. That's something else. Christianity is coming to Jesus humble, poor, broken, and saying, I have nothing to offer. I only receive. You've given it all. And if you're not a Christian or among our children who've not been baptized, just don't go through the motions. It won't do you any good. It could actually be detrimental to you. But where you're at, call on God to change your heart and start a new life with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that he who is great and exalted became lowly so that we who are far away might come near. And I pray for every Christian here today that their hearts would be filled with your love as they think about Jesus's life given for them. And I pray for any person here today, even among our children, who does not know Christ, who has not heard the call of the Savior, come and follow me. Find rest for your soul that today, Lord, by your spirit, you would draw them to yourself, that they might begin a new life with 